Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today we're talking with Stephen Buhner about sacred and herbal healing beers. And Justin, I know that you're a brewer yourself, so this issue hits pretty close to home for you, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I've been brewing off and on for about two years now, and I ran across Stephen Buhner's work initially when he wrote The Lost Language of Plants, which was really amazing. It talked about all the different chemical signals that plants send to each other that serve as communication between all the different plants. And he talked about you know, the role of uh, fungi in the ecosystem and the role of all of the different rhizomes and pathways that information gets exposed. Changed. And then, of course, he had a large part of the book that talked about the way that pharmaceuticals interact with the environment. And that's really what blew my mind when I was reading that book. He was discussing how just even small concentrations of a few parts per million can disable the pump function on shrimp that would normally allow them to remove birth control and other drugs that they would filter through them and then it would keep it all inside them and concentrate it. And it was really eye-opening to me about the role that the medical system had in the environment. But mainly today, we're talking with Stephen about his book on sacred and herbal healing beers, which has also been inspiring, realizing that there's an entirely different story to alcohol that we don't normally come across when you know we go out to a bar and buy a drink that's only a very small segment of the beer brewing that's occurred throughout history healing beers and sacred beers has been very much a part of the mystical nature of many different religions and traditions throughout time and we're going to find out all about that stuff today yeah let's take it away Thanks for joining us from Silver City, New Mexico today to talk about quite a few different topics related to all the things that you write about, but also primarily your book, Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers. Great. Thanks for having me on. I was just thinking that you could start out by telling us the importance that plants have in our lives. Well, it's an interesting thing, you know, because Americans and a lot of people in the Western world don't tend to think much about plants. They tend to be sort of a background dynamic in our lives, just part of the scenery, really. But the interesting thing is, I mean, if you think about 
you know, we can make an artificial horse, you know, a car through technology, but artificial lettuce, artificial fruit trees, you can't do it. They're so fundamentally part of the ecosystem. And in fact, the oxygen content of the air depends heavily on them. So in a way, if you want to look at what's one of the most important species on the planet, it's not people, it's plants. Without them, we couldn't exist at all. Just at a very basic level, that's the importance of plants. How does our culture value plants in its normal, you know, everyday life? How do, how do people value plants? How do they look on them? Well, they don't really. You know, I used to, one of my, my humorous statements that I used to make all the time and still do occasionally is that, you know, Americans are actually one of the most unique cultures on the planet because they can actually identify every plant that exists because there's only three kinds. There's grasses and then there's bushes and then there's trees. That's pretty much how it works. The United States occupies a really unusual kind of cultural niche and it's a a fairly unusual culture in a lot of ways. Part of that has to do with the fact that our culture has bought the idea of the evolutionary escalator pretty much hook, line, and sinker. Now, Darwin specifically rejected that concept in all of his work, but the neo-Darwinianists are pretty much into it, and it's a fairly dangerous kind of um, belief or metaphor that people have accepted here. And basically it's that, you know, you all have heard this, you know, we began in, as these tiny creatures in the slime. We rose out of the slime and slowly, step by step, we climbed the evolutionary escalator till we achieved, you know, the highest position on the planet, you know, an intelligent being. And we're like at the top of the evolutionary pyramid. That belief is taught everywhere it permeates everything in this culture and actually to a certain extent in most western cultures but as soon as you buy that belief system basically it's sort of a derivative of descartes statement that i think therefore i am which also means if you do not think you're not most affirmations also affirm the opposite or the negative and the thing about plants is that within that frame they're very, very unintelligent, and they don't have much mobility, and you can't actually see them do anything. So they're pretty much relegated to this background sort of unimportant organism that we take so for granted that we never really see them anymore. And that has actually tremendously dangerous consequences for our culture, for the world, for our society because of how fundamentally important they are to our survivability on this planet. And in just producing the, the oxygen for us to breathe, right? I mean, that's like the simplest thing to see. But, you know, it turns out plants are highly intelligent. They have extremely sophisticated nervous systems and their interaction dynamics with the whole web of life are incredibly complex, way more than just oxygen dynamics. Absolutely. And it would take uh, probably another hour interview to just go into the, the dynamics there. But just sharing a story from Canada as well, it's not just the United States that has that viewpoint. Here in Vancouver, there was a family in my neighborhood who started doing a permaculture garden in their front lawn. And their next door neighbor raised a complaint with the city because 
it was starting to degrade his housing value because it supposedly looked ugly. And the guy said that in Canada, we have lawns. What an arrogant statement. But it, eventually he ended up losing it and the family got to keep their permaculture garden. So it's it's not just a United States thing. It's, it's Canada as well. The whole Western world has kind of gotten into that frame. And I just think it's probably most severe in the United States. And I would say probably secondarily in the UK, and then probably third in Canada. And it's a definitely extremely difficult problem. You know, it's kind of this interesting thing that once we removed intelligence from nature, you know, things really began to go south on that deal. But nature might just return the favor here before too long. And so how is our view now different from the views that traditional cultures had in relationship to plants? It was pretty much the way Darwin, see Darwin you know, he was an interesting guy, and um, he's not very few people that are neo-Darwinians actually ever read Darwin. They just sort of pick up statements that they attribute to him, which mostly came from other people. But one of the neat things that Darwin said was he said uh, that the life on this planet is like a bush, and everything that grows is like a branch on that bush, each one equidistant from the center. And that sums up almost perfectly ancient and indigenous cultures' perspective on plants and the natural world. They looked at everything as being part of the life web, nothing more important than anything else, just everything with different capacities, different functions in the world, you might say. Scientists in the West, especially in the United States, have been focusing for a long time on, you know, where's consciousness located in the, in the body? And they basically say, well, it's in the brain. But the weird thing is, it's impossible to live as a disembodied brain. You can't do it. So, you know, they work to try to replace all of the organs. But basically, when it comes right down to it, every organ in the body is pretty much equally as important as every other. And that's sort of the con. You can't live as a disembodied brain, although there are some physicists that actually try it, you know, uh, they're just not very much fun to hug. But the thing <laughs> is, that that's how indigenous people viewed everything, everything fundamentally important, everything alive, everything intelligent, and human beings just part of that circle. So you were talking a little bit about humans as kind of rising above plants in a way. I mean, they've already reached the, the pinnacle of their evolutionary model. We see trees as a species that's perfectly suited to their surroundings, mostly made out of air, but yet rise hundreds of feet into the air. Is there a way that we can use this symbol of the pinnacle of evolutionary biota that we see in plants and trees as a model for the human evolutionary cycle? One of the things that's different in the way I view things is my fundamental orientation. There's this cool thing Buckminster Fuller said a long time ago. He said, universe is not a place. It's a scenario. It's possible to get out of a place. It's not possible to get out of a scenario. That concept of life being a scenario is an extremely difficult one for people in the Western culture to understand to begin with, much less to embrace. So when you begin to use a word like pinnacle of evolution, that phrase, that word, bound as it is within that sentence, incorporates the very concept of an evolutionary escalator. But what's really true about the way the Gaian ecosystem works 
and life on this planet is that every life form that is expressed out of the ecological matrix of this planet is expressed to fulfill a specific function. Once it's expressed into the matrix, there's this continual kind of innovation that's occurring on that particular theme. That's why originally when plants first emerged, let's say, out of the ecological matrix, they were expressed, extruded into a particular form here to fulfill an ecological function that had to do with maintaining the homeodynamics of the planet itself. And once they emerge, they begin to engage in symbiogenetic alteration. Basically, they're given a kind of a task, the ecological niche to fulfill, and then they begin, the plants themselves begin innovating on that task. You know, they would call that niche specialization with a neo-Darwinianist perspective, but that's really much too simplistic. And so what you get over a long period of time is this extremely sophisticated variety of plant forms and plant species shaped as much by their environmental niche as anything else. So recognizing that and understanding that we were expressed for a particular ecological function as well and that everything is necessary for the homeodynamic functioning of the planet, that's more kind of how... I look at it. it. It's Aldo Leopold said this great thing once. I just love this statement. He said, uh, one of the fundamental truths of ecological tinkering, one of the first things you want to do is save all the parts. And I suppose there isn't a one of us who wasn't, as a child, took something apart that we shouldn't. For me, it was watches when I was young. And watches back then, they tended to have a lot of little springs in them. So when you got them apart, the springs and parts would fly all around the room. Never could find all the pieces again. And of course, I got in a lot of trouble. But that's sort of what we've been doing here, taking pieces out without really understanding what they do. So I look at everything more as an ecologically interwoven complexity rather than anything achieving a pinnacle. Nothing here is an end product, really. It's easy to see how plants can fit into an ecological matrix on, on the planet Earth. There's easy examples of terraforming the planet, oxygen production, and you know making it safe for other life forms to exist. We look at humans doing the same things right nowadays, but in a very negative way. I mean, we see them destroying a lot of things. What is the purpose of the human race in such an ecological matrix? That's actually an incredibly long discussion, and it's actually the subject of the book that I'm working on now, it's a crucially important question to ask. If you start looking at the function of large carnivores on the planet, there's been a lot of really great work on this, you know, about uh, bears and wolves and things like that, and the importance that they help in the balancing of things. But I think Goethe, the great German poet, who's work I really with plants, especially I really like. He said this great thing a long time ago. He said, if you want to understand the normal or if you want to understand how things work, assume that the abnormal is normal. So if you make an assumption that the human species behavior, what they've been doing, is actually part of their ecological function, well, it really scrambles the environmental brain considerably to do that but once you do that, you start, rather than viewing it as human beings as a cancer or a virus or things like that, you start to really ask the important question of, well, why ecologically 
is this happening? The real simple answer is, and I can tell you, though, you know, a lot of people disagree with it, but the fascinating thing is that human beings, if you really get into what the foundational structure, ecological structure of the planet is, where what life is composed of, it's really bacteria. And Lynn Margolis's work on that's been really brilliant, and it was fundamental to Jim Lovelock's work developing the Gaia theory. Lynn Margolis came up with the recognition that there were four primary forms of bacteria from which all life on Earth is formed, including human beings. If you look then, well, Buckminster Fuller, too, said a fascinating thing once. He said, uh, we're like bees, you see. Bees who go out looking for honey without realizing that we're also performing cross-pollination. And then Richard Dawkins said an interesting thing once. He said, well, Gaia's not alive because Gaia doesn't reproduce. And I thought that was a fascinating assumption by somebody who has about an 80-year lifespan, about a four and a half billion-year-old organism. But the interesting thing is that when you look at what human beings have been doing, their space probes and everything that they've been making bear an uncanny resemblance to both viruses and uh, spores, fungal spores. The things that we're sending into space are filled with those bacterial progenitors life on this planet. So in a lot of ways, you could say that the Earth's been setting seed for the last several hundred years, and we're sort of the pollinators who are sending those progenitors out into space to other planets. It took about a billion years for the living membrane of the Earth to form once it was seeded. If you start looking at it like that, it changes everything. It makes you wonder if human beings are in some way a part of the reproductive organism of the planet. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, sure, of course. That's that's fundamentally what human beings are. We're like bees, exactly. I mean, when bees are going out looking for honey, they aren't really thinking about cross-pollination. They think they're just looking for honey, right? So their desire for honey is being used in a way by the planet itself by plants in order to help this ecological need to be fulfilled. And everything that is, is fulfilling a primary ecological need of the planet. The question becomes, what is the ecological need? And it's a question that's very rarely asked about almost anything. But it's the most fundamental one. If we want to be good students, if we want to be good ecologists, that's the thing we need to understand before we interfere. We need to understand what we're interfering with. Right. And I wonder sometimes if the ecosystem could function without animals because the plants are taking sunlight and placing it through complex nitrogen chains and uh, complex processes to produce biomass and all the proteins and everything. And then bacteria and fungi are breaking it down. And you, you could look at it perhaps as animals are just kind of riding on top of that. But do you, do you see kind of a, a complex role for the animals and the carnivores in the role of the ecosystem? Well, sure, of course. The one, you know, Gerda had this great line a long time ago, too. He said, I trust myself to nature. She may do as she will with me. The interesting thing is that of all of the groups on the planet that trust the Earth least, it often tends to be environmentalists which is an odd thing. But the thing is, the Earth is not really in danger. The human species is in danger, in a sense, if you want to look at it 
from that sort of simplistic frame, it's not even really the human species that's at risk, it's our civilization that's at risk, the technological structure that's been created. But if you get to that fundamental trust and what Gaia does over these long timelines, what you start to see is, once again, nothing is expressed out of the ecological matrix of the planet except to fulfill a specific ecological need. There's something that the Gaian ecosystem is doing which required the generation of complex forms that we call mammals or carnivores, and they do important things. I mean, at the very least, animals spread plant seeds everywhere, and the human species has spread plant seeds everywhere around the planet. So, yeah, everything is fundamentally an important part of what's happening. Most people now know what ecology is, but just in case there are some people in the audience who don't, I should explain that ecology is that branch of science which deals with the relationship between organisms and their environments. The word is, of course, Greek. Ekos, meaning the house or the household. Loyos, meaning the rationale of it as in economics, which is a similar word. I suppose the starting point for economic analysis right through the 20th century, and, and really to this day, was something called the circular flow of exchange value. So economists consider the economy to be a relationship between firms and households, where households paid money to firms in exchange for goods and services, and firms paid wages and dividends to household in exchange for the factors of production, so-called. Um, labor, investment capital, and so on. And many of the economic textbooks actually describe this as a self-perpetuating flow of exchange value, that with each round, the growth of the uh, value of these exchanges increases, so the economy can expand essentially forever. But the point is, that model makes no reference whatsoever to the biophysical basis for those circular flows. Those goods and services, for example, each involve material extracted from ecosystems, processed in the economy. Most of the material that comes in actually is emitted as waste and only a tiny part of it shows up in the actual products. So in order to drive the circular flows, we need a continuous throughput of energy and material from the environment, so-called, I think, of the ecosphere back into the ecosphere. But as the scale of the economy increases, this is causing resource depletion on the one hand and excess pollution on the other. So there's a fundamental disconnect between the way economists have historically thought about the economy and nature. Uh, there is no nature in the standard economic models. And as Herman Daly, probably the, the grandfather of ecological economics, has argued, this is rather like asking an engineering student to study how an automobile could power itself on its own exhaust 
or a student of biology to wonder how a, 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 an animal could live on its own excrement. There's just no connection whatsoever to external reality. It's like studying the circulatory system without any reference to the digestive system. Ecology arose in Western science for this simple reason, that when you try to describe completely the behavior of any living organism, you find that you cannot describe the organism without at the same time describing its environment. And that led to a very interesting thought, that the idea of a separate organism is false. And that, however, is an idea implanted in everyone's common sense. One thinks of oneself as a separate being, and not merely as a separate body, but as a separate ego inside a body. And so, in common speech, we are apt to say, I have a body, rather than I am a body. In fact, we look upon our bodies rather contemptuously. The physical aspect is always in some way considered inferior to the mental, the spiritual, the psychological aspect. And so we feel, we are brought up to feel, divided into two parts. The mind on the one hand, or the soul, and on the other hand, the body, the corpus, and our whole ecological crisis results from this kind of schizophrenic attitude towards our identity. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Stephen Buhner about ecology and alcohol. Why do we look at the process of natural selection as a competition instead of the ability to relate to this ecological matrix? You know, one of the interesting things is if you look at Descartes' work, and I think a lot of this came out of it, a lot of the stuff he was saying is actually an expression of his psychological orientation that he had at the time. And that's not uncommon at all. For It's one of the things that scientists typically leave out of their equations and their, they fail to factor in that nobody is objective, nobody is value-free. When, when a scientist is doing something, who they are as a human being, the needs and fears and everything else they have, are a fundamental part of the outcomes that they begin to generate. So early on, when Darwin's stuff was taken by T.H. Huxley and Herbert Spencer, they began to like sort of popularize it. So that was a unique time in English history. And um, if you look back, the Chinese had this interesting thing when they were at the height of their empire, like what, 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they said they were of the truly civilized center. And the farther you got away from that center, the more barbaric everything became, that there was this kind of regression back through the developmental stages that it took people, that they had to go through to become civilized. Here, it's gone through this dynamic where we're the most... You know, and, the, and when other cultures are looked at, we're looked at as the most well-developed here in the United States. 
and every other culture outside is at a slightly lesser stage of development and some quite a bit much more so. That kind of thinking was really predominant in England when this stuff was being brought out. And one of the things that social Darwinism does, that belief of competition or survival of the fittest, it supports a social Darwinism just by the very structure of the statement. What's really true is, yeah, every organism has a clear sense of its own self-identity, its own boundaries of itself and the others out there. And every organism has to be able to identify self and other and to figure out what the intentions of the other is and then to be able to, if the intentions are hostile, then to figure out a, a response. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a virus or a bacteria or a plant, it just doesn't matter. That's the way it works. But that's not all that's involved. So people sort of seized on that red and tooth and claw survival of the fittest thing without realizing that cooperation is fundamentally a part of ecosystem function just as much as that competition is. In fact, in general, in the wildness of the world, things are killed for food or else things die because they've biodegraded. I mean, one of the things people miss is human beings are designed to be biodegradable. We're designed to die and to be absorbed back into the ecological matrix of the planet. So that whole concept of survival of the fittest is an odd one anyway because it's assuming it's possible to live without dying, which it's not. So that kind of expression and the way it took over everything was really more of an expression of the psychological orientation of the time. And it fits, it allows certain corporatism to occur, certain, certain kinds of industrialism or military dynamics to occur. It supports psychological frame. A lot of what I'm sure you're looking at as well as I am and many people who want an alternative to that is the degree of cooperation that occurs in ecosystems. And those are just two. There's complexity of things that are occurring. But anyway, that's how I see it. There's a reason why fundamental cultural beliefs emerge and are also held on to so strongly. You bring up a lot of interesting points. One thing that pops up into my mind right away when you say that animals and humans alike are just trying to respond to nature is that very short-term goals of these species and you know humans as well are just to survive and to and reproduce. And, and those goals are the, the actual things that the species produce, like say plants and oxygen in our, in our atmosphere, are just byproducts. And they don't even come into the, the species mindset. This, this also brings up another thought that I had about a talk I listened to about Terrence McKenna, who proposed that evolutionary biology provided humans with the opposable thumb so it could take the evolutionary cycle further in producing machines, which are made out of minerals and materials of the earth, and then giving that control of these of the process of machines back to Mother Nature. And this experiment of human consciousness was a huge gamble for the earth and for the planet in general. But we see it now coming back full circle with the rise of technology. So would you say that these long-term goals and these long-term effects of different species on the ecosystem and on the on the planet taking it to the next level this is what we're here for is to take it to the next level even when we don't even know that we're doing it the idea that you're communicating there 
is uh, somewhat popular. It's been around for a long time. It's it's in one form or another present in Buddhism and a number of different and within what I might call the New Age communities or humanistic psychology communities are in the entheogen community or whatever. There's a certain, you know, the statement can be summed up sort of by saying, you know, human beings are the universe becoming, a, you know, conscious, let's say. You know, that's you can change the word conscious to a variety of things to be, you know, enlightened or aware or whatever. The thing is that the universe is already aware. The universe is already conscious. The earth is already conscious, highly intelligent and aware. One of the major problems that I see in the, the belief system, you might say human beings have a lot of software problems, right? So we get software dynamics from our culture or from around us, and a lot of the ones that we pick up are ones we never really question because they're just ingrained at such an early age. And one of those is the idea of human exceptionalism. That one's an extremely difficult one to deal with. In truth, human beings aren't any more exceptional or any less exceptional than anything else. We're not that important. Okay, we have certain ecological function that's important, but in the, the scheme of things, we're no more important than the dinosaurs or a molecule of water or anything else. We're not that special. Trying to look at somehow that our accomplishments are unique, when you're looking at it from a four and a half billion year ecological perspective, it's very much a hubristic kind of orientation. We're all going to die. The human species will eventually go extinct. All of our civilization will be nothing. It'll all be disappeared. It doesn't matter. It's like somehow people are wanting to try to find some ultimate meaning in the larger scope of our existence, but really that's not really where it is. That that concept of, of us being unique or exceptional somehow is really in a lot of ways at the root of the problem. And so Americans feel like they're exceptional so that thing, it's almost like a corrupted software program that begins to be generated. We really aren't any different. So, no, I don't really kind of buy that frame anymore. I did when I was young, though. And yet we live inside this cultural story of exceptionalism and this corrupted software. And it's brought our species to a point where maybe perhaps because of our modern lifestyle, are, are we splitting off and becoming a new subspecies of human and one that's so different from the natural state of humanity? And if so, is there anything that we can do to revert back to our natural state? Well, human beings aren't really becoming a new subspecies. That's one of the kind of weird things. Human beings really haven't changed all that much since they emerged. And we like to think that we have, but when you start to scrape off the thin veneer of civilization, you know, that's on top, all of the other stuff is still there. And as a matter of fact, it, ex it expresses itself through what is called our civilized demeanor all the time anyway. The word civilized really means of the cities, and a citizen is somebody who lives in a city, and we've, we've adapted to this certain kind of living circumstance, but all the other stuff is still there. It's more like we're not using a lot of those older capacities, but we still use a lot of them every day. It's just people don't know it. Like if people walk into a room, if you walk into a conference room, let's say, and you go into that room, 
and almost everybody does the same thing. There'll be a bunch of people already in the conference room sitting around, and almost everybody will stop right inside the door, and they look around. And what they really do in that minute is they're feeling the room to feel how safe it feels. They're judging the quality of feeling tone of the room, and that gives them information about the degree of safety, the comfort level they're going to have, and everything else so that they prepare themselves for being in that particular meaning frame that the room is expressing. Then they look around the room and they look at all the different places they can sit and they imagine sitting in that spot and imagine how it feels. And some part of them will say, no, don't sit there, no, sit over there, until they finally find the spot they want to sit in. Conversely, everybody's had this experience of seeing a little puppy walking across the floor and the puppy hasn't seen you, and you're looking at the puppy and watching it, and then you say, here, boy, here, boy, and the puppy looks up and sees you, and right in that minute, you can feel something go from the puppy to you and something go from you to the puppy. That, you know, The ancient Greeks called that a moment of aesthesis, this exchange of soul essence. We don't talk about it anymore, but the experience itself is alive, and we use it every day. The difference is... So is that in ancient cultures, that capacity, that way of perceiving or touching, non-kinesthetic touching, was developed to an extremely high level of sophistication. People back there didn't spend their time watching TV or reading books. They read the fabric of the world and touched it like that. So those skills are still there, and we're going to need them all again before very long, I suspect. And one of the things that defines our civilization and the way that we exist in cities now is the way that we use alcohol. As you wrote in Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers, there are a lot of different views on alcohol than the view that we have now. And so now we have this ritual where quite often, you know, we'll come home from a hard day at work and, you know, make up a drink and drink that or go out to a bar and use that ritual of going out to a bar or a restaurant or something and drinking as our approach to alcohol. So how did other cultures view their approach to alcohol and how is it different from ours? So relatively recently, alcohol fit into this larger context of dynamics of altering consciousness. I mean, consciousness is highly mutable. We're trained to believe we're a single point of view with a single consciousness and we should feel a certain way all of the time. You know, but prior to that sort of neuroses taking hold culturally, there was a lot of exploration of shifts in consciousness. And so you're looking at alcohol as a particular kind of entheogen, really a, a substance that changes the psychic frame, that changes consciousness itself. And it was just part of a larger and more broad dynamic. So you need to understand that everything on the planet drinks alcohol absolutely everything. And trees get drunk when an apple tree drops fruit on the ground and it ferments and then it rains and that seeps down into the ground. The tree imbibes it and becomes just as drunk as we do and it its words and it has hangovers the next day. And there was actually a guy in about 1900, Jagatis Bose, who spent a lot of time measuring exactly how drunk a tree would get. Birds, bees, all animals respond to it. So you have to understand it performs a, a, an essential function in the ecosystem, just like entheogenic plants or any other kind of psychotropics do. Cultures 
before ours recognized that it was important for human beings to participate in that. And nearly every indigenous culture on the planet brewed and drank alcohol. I could find very few exceptions when I was looking at that, except maybe the Australian Aborigines were one of the few in a certain small tribal groups in the center of the United States. But they were really the exception rather than the rule. So any kind of a sugar substance on the planet will naturally ferment into an alcohol. And of course, people would participate in that. And in general, in the older times that it was very much a community process, a process of celebration and ceremonies and things like that. The idea of a solitary drinker is extremely new. But yeah, it was an, it recognized as an important thing. People did it. There wasn't a lot of um, cultural prohibitions about it. There, were, there wasn't the kind of shaming dynamic that occurs so frequently now. And I think in part, as part of our Protestant background, there's a you know, one of the ways I define a Protestant is uh, somebody that knows that somewhere somebody's having a good time and they got to put a stop to it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very interesting you talking about uh, trees getting drunk. How does how does somebody measure a tree consuming alcohol? And well, getting, getting Bose, who who did the most brilliant work, but was one of the most boring writers on the planet. So I got all of his books and waded through them. It was like it took a lot of caffeine, believe me, to get another psychotropic substance to get (laughs) through the thing. But he basically found a way to measure the nervous system activity of plants and their physical movements. And there was some complicated stuff that he goes into in great detail in his books. And then he would show when they got drunk or when they, like, for instance, he would chloroform plants. He did this great thing. He he made this big tent, and he put it over a big tree, a full-grown tree, and he chloroformed the plant. Then he dug it up, and he moved it to a new location, basically transplanted it. Well, a lot of plants, big trees especially, will go into shock when that happens, but not if they're, you know, chloroformed first. Really? It's like an operation, yeah. Wow. So the thing is, the Earth tends to use common templates of everything, and they then the Earth innovates on those templates after a while. The nervous system of plants is extremely similar to ours, and they make the same kind of neurotransmitters that we make and use in our brains for exactly the same reasons, and their nervous system, in many instances, is nearly as quick as ours. So it's not that surprising. They breathe in and out just like we do through little tiny lung mouths on the bottom of their leaves called stomatus. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the the alcohol that we drink is made from plants themselves. So it's not surprising that we would all feel those kind of impacts. Have there been experiments with other kind of drugs on plants? Uh, any Bose was really into it. He used everything he could think of. Wow. And then, of course, people never really ask, what's the function of psychotropics in the ecosystem? So when you've got psilocybin or mescaline, it doesn't matter what it is that's growing there. Those particular psychotropic chemicals are released, and they often move through the mycelial network that all plants tend to be connected into in an eco-range, and the other plants imbibe them. And part of what they do is every organism has a, a grouping of things called sensory gating channels, and those control how much sensory data comes in through your sensory receptors. 
how what kind of sound or, or how much visual input or whatever. And the thing is, psychotropics, they open the sensory gating channels extremely wide, so more data comes in. And all of the information coming in is inside those things. There's complexes of meaning that are extremely well complicated. And schizophrenics tend to have sensory gating channels that they can't close down very easily, and so they're bombarded all of the time with too much meaning coming out of the world through their sensory inputs. But what happens is when people go on visionary experiences or do alcohol or whatever, it tends to open those sensory gating channels in certain ways, and it allows any organism that works with them to begin generating really unique solutions to to the problems they face. It, it shouldn't be a surprise that Stephen Jobs, a lot of the stuff he did with Apple computers came out of him taking acid a long time ago. If you begin to look at a lot of the innovations that happened in the 60s, psychotropics were involved in a lot of them. And so what you're, you're saying is that plants are using these substances as well to... Oh, sure, of course they are. They get high just like we do. And it changes their orientation and perception. And it's, I mean, there's a, you know, there's this neat thing Isaac Asimov had a long time ago. He goes, you know, all scientific advances, they don't come from somebody going eureka. They come from somebody going, huh, that's funny. (laughs) So it's like (laughs) people would get stoned back in the 60s. They'd be sitting around going, huh, this is kind of interesting. What if? And So so I wonder if you feed... LSD to an apple tree, will it start tasting like a banana or an orange? <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, well, interesting things happen. So in any event, alcohol, one of the functions of alcohol is, I mean, it's got its own specific range of stuff that it does, but one of the things it does, which we all know about, is that it reduces inhibitions in behavior. So it basically takes off that normal voice inside ourselves that tells us that we can't do things or that we're not a good person or whatever it is that that voice tells us, that voice ends up becoming muffled then. And so people began to allow repressed parts to come out. And one of the reasons writers and so many artists would drink alcohol is that it did that, but it also activated certain portions of the brain that are deeply involved with language and creativity in that way. So it allowed these kind of innovations to occur that couldn't occur when that internal sensor was highly activated. So most cultures that I've studied looked at alcohol as performing that specific function, and they felt it was important within the context of the community itself for that to happen regularly. But we talk about alcohol being used by ancient civilizations. What was the main difference between a beer, say, 10,000 years ago and a beer today? You've heard this probably ad nauseum anyway. But a lot of the food we eat now is not really food. It's dead. It's a dead food. And beers 10,000 years ago were a live food. Any kind of a homebrewed beer with yeast in it is a live substance. And one of the things I did once that I thought was really quite enjoyable was I bought a whole lot of commercial beers in which the yeast had been killed because they heat the beer to kill the yeast. And it's not kind of in a, a sleeping state in the bottom of the bottle anymore. It's just flat out dead. And then they strain it out. So you get this sort of fake beer thing. But 
in the old days, the yeast was left in quite often. Um, in some of the cultures, the grain itself was left in, and any plants that they used were also left in, so that you would have this incredibly rich fermented food, which of a special sort, which you could look at somewhat more like a, a sauerkraut or a pickle or something like that, because you had all of that stuff in there, and the the yeast would normally double the vitamin B content and the protein content of whatever it is that was fermented, as well as getting you high, too. So other cultures would tend to strain that out more, but they would still leave the yeast in the bottle, so it would have a, when it was poured off, it would have kind of a cloudy appearance. And those yeasts are extremely potent food source. So what they were doing, they were literally creating a kind of food that wouldn't go bad, if you get what I mean, like sauerkraut doesn't tend to go bad, or kimchi that the Koreans make, or whatever. So it was a very potent, very nutritious, extremely good food. In many instances, when the Protestant missionaries went into the Pacific Islands, for instance, and they made the local people stop fermenting those beers and drinking them, huge numbers of diseases that the cultures had never known became common, like beriberi and pellagra, for instance, that they would start to have vitamin deficiencies because there was no way their diet could compensate for the lack of fermented food. Drinking is a ritual which creates a feeling of community. This is what happens when you're when you're having a drink with a friend. And as a matter of fact, if you this is the way you make make friends. We still have rituals that involve alcohol. At the happy hour of Plato's time, kings and peasants could sit together and be equals. Today it gives us a chance to do the same with our boss. Alcohol played a vital role in the development of America. Acting as both currency and beverage, rum was a key staple on the American frontier. The first businesses set up in the vast wilderness were usually taverns that gave fur traders and trappers a place to do business. The whole name of the Western game is to create boundaries and maintain them. The church and the state, the poor and the wealthy, the black and the white, the living and the dead, the foreign and the familiar, all of these categorical uh, divisions allow a kind of thinking that is completely cockamamie. After all, reality is, in fact, a seamless, unspeakable something. And we understand that to perceive it separately is a necessary adjunct to the act of understanding. But it is not the end of the program of understanding. The particulate data has to be recombined in a paradigm, a seamless overview of what is happening. And uh, the drugs that Western society has traditionally favored have either been drugs which maintain boundaries or 
uh, drugs which promote mindless, repetitious physical activity on the assembly line, in the slave galley, uh, on the uh, latifundia, the slave-driven agricultural project, whatever it is, in the corporate office. This is why every labor contract on this planet, at least in Western civilization, contains a provision that all workers shall be allowed to use drugs twice a day at designated times, but the drug shall be caffeine. Now, the reason caffeine is so welcome in the workplace is because it, the last three hours of the workday are utterly unproductive unless you goose everybody with two cups of coffee and then they can go back to the word processor, the widget tightening machine or whatever they're doing and mindlessly and happily uh, uh, carry on. If it were suggested that there be a pot break twice a day, you know, you would think that civilization was striking the iceberg or something. Our society is an alcohol, red meat, sugar and tobacco culture and all of these are forms of, uh, of speed basically in the way that we use them. I mean yes you can tranquilize yourself on alcohol but you're pushing toward levels where a lifetime of tranquilizing yourself on alcohol will be a short lifetime uh, if you use it that way. So there's a lot of tension in society between the great exploring soul and the assembly line citizen. The citizen is defined by obligation and by the boundaries that define, you know, the next citizen, either because it's neighbor or worker or employer or something like that. And the grand exploring soul is marginalized as an eccentric or if necessary more seriously marginalized as mad in some way. I mean madness basically at, up until the level of physical violence means you are behaving in a way which makes me feel uncomfortable therefore there's something wrong with you. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking with Stephen Buhner about his book, Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers. Where did beer and brewing originate, and how did fermentation relate to the origin of civilization as we know it? Well, a lot of people feel that intentional fermentation occurred in... Egypt in that sort of range. You know, it's an interesting question. I suppose you could say, when did technological cultures first begin to ferment? And I'd say there. Some people now are starting to say that what happened is, as tribal groups moved through that area, they discovered that the grains that grew in abundance there could be fermented, and they settled there because there was that abundance already in place, and that civilization began not when we started thinking, but when we started drinking. There's actually a such thing as beer anthropologists, and they spend a lot of time on this. It's kind of a nice job. You just go around the world and drink and then talk about you know, 
your experiences, but they do a lot of great research, and that's part of what they're finding out there. But if you also realize that, you know, they're starting to move back the date of human habitation in North America quite far now, although there's still, there's still a lot of arguments about it, but they're going back, you know, perhaps as much as 30,000 years. And the thing is, people were fermenting for a very long time in indigenous cultures. It's just that there's not much trace left of the fermentation longer than about 4,000 years ago or so. You were writing in the book about anxiety theory, and some early anthropologists were writing about our ancestors living in a state of anxiety, and that led them to create fairy tales about the world, and perhaps they were using alcohol to help them mediate that. What are your thoughts on anxiety theory, and how does that play into alcohol use? It's completely hilarious. After a while, if you read enough scientific stuff, you'll start to notice the, the uses of the word like probably, most likely, stuff like that. Basically, these guys just make up whatever they want. I mean, when I was in school in third grade, our teacher told us that the reason the dinosaurs died out was because of their brain, and the brontosaurus was the size of a walnut. And if they got bit in the tail, it would take a week for the nervous impulses to reach its brain to let it know it was wounded. And therefore, that's how the dinosaurs died out, because they were too stupid. Well, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but nevertheless, that was an extremely widespread theory that a bunch of armchair guys made up, as well as the fact that dinosaurs, you know, were lizards, and actually it's pretty clear now that they're birds. But in any event, that thing, you get people sitting in this culture, looking at another culture, and then imagining what it would be like to live that way, you know, without servants and without television and without, you know, central heating and all of that. And what you get is that person would feel afraid in that circumstance. And so they go, yeah, I'd want to drink. But when you look at what the people there actually said, interviews with people who had had no exposure to Western culture and they were asked about it, they didn't live in a state of anxiety all the time. That was their natural world and they learned how to live in it just like anybody else would. And they liked to party just like Human beings have always liked the party. So it's actually a bunch of the anxiety theories, a bunch of nonsense promulgated by people that had an investment in indigenous cultures being reduced to semi-human status, basically. That's right. Through my research, I found that some of the first ferments were most likely meads and using honey as a preservative in a lot of ways to uh, preserve different kinds of foods and mushrooms. Um, what was the role of, of honey and the bee in ancient fermentation? How does mead traditionally differ from the mead now, and what are the nutritional benefits? Well, honey is an amazing substance anyway. I mean, there's not that much sugar available in a natural ecosystem in a pure form. I mean, you can get some of it, but honey is... I mean, it would be like a kid being, say, you know, go in the candy store and take whatever you want. Human beings like sugar. They need sugar. So honey would have been a tremendously wonderful substance to find back then because sugar was so rare. And bees, because they concentrate the nectar of flowers to such a high sugar content, it's naturally antibacterial. It's probably one of the best wound treatments that that exists on the earth. And actually, they're using a lot in England in burn clinics and surgical wards now because it uh, is active against 
every known antibiotic resistant bacteria that there is. So it's a phenomenal substance and it's extremely high in nutrients as well. So when needs were made back then, that you know, it was the easiest thing to do. You add some water to honey, it lowers the sugar content enough that yeast can begin to ferment. Not only do you have this sweet substance, you also get high too, so it's all the way around it's great. But back then when they were making needs everything would go into it. I mean, you have to understand, you're walking in the forest and you find this honey, this wild beehive, so you've got to first steal the hive, which is challenging. So they would take that and pretty much boil the whole hive itself in water, and the wax would come to the surface and they'd skim it off. But in that substance, you would have the honey, you would have the royal jelly, you would have the propolis, you would have bee um, larvae, which are extremely high in protein as well, and a lot of bee, you know, venom as well from the angry bees that went in there with the, the uh, hive. So, so when they, they boil the bees along with the hive? Well, sure. You have to oh. imagine there's bees in the hive itself that are entangled in the honey as you're pulling it out of the hive. Whatever came along with the hive went into the water itself. So that was then boiled, the stuff was skimmed off the surface, and the wax used for other things. And then what you get is this fermented substance that's very high in royal jelly and propolis and honey and everything else. It's tremendously nutritive and healthy. It's a phenomenal thing. The meads we have today are very much like commercial beers. They tend to be a dead food in which the you know they're purified, basically, and the yeast is killed. Yeast is such an important part of the brewing process, making it possible for, for us to convert those sugars into alcohol. And what's the relationship to yeast now compared to how ancient cultures viewed yeast? Uh, it's very similar to our relationship to garden plants. Like in the old days when people har- wild harvested foods, they looked as, at the plants as having the predominant power. Like we went out and just hoped we could find what we needed. Once people start gardening, they tend to start thinking of the plants as something they can control. Bad idea. But nevertheless, that's what happens. So the same thing has happened with yeast. Most people don't actually work with yeast. They buy it in a brewing store or whatever in a little packet, and then they activate it by adding water and sugar to it, and then they they put it in the wort to brew the beer. In the old days, to get their original yeast strains, they had to use a wild fermentation. And yeast are so small, you can't really see them move through the air and get in there. There was the sense of wonder and awe about the whole process and a huge reverence for yeast itself as this incredible substance that could produce this amazing outcome. In a lot of ways, one of the major differences between us now and people long ago is we've lost our sense of wonder and awe. We just don't have, we take everything so cynically for granted. As a matter of fact, we've been sort of inculcated with what might be called an agnostic reflex, the tendency to not have a sense of wonder or awe. And that's one of the major differences. Yeast were considered a phenomenal thing, and there was a huge amount of sacred reverence for them. So can you talk a little bit about what a sacred beer is? Well, I think most of the things in the ancient world challenge a lot of our modern worldview, and just the natural world itself challenges our modern worldview. But that concept of the sacred is really it's a thing that human beings recognize as being imbued 
with some invisible thing that is has it possesses a kind of a quality that just shifts the people that are experiencing it to come into contact with it somehow. So certain groves would be set aside as sacred in the old days and certain stone formations or certain things like that. And when there was a certain kind of attentiveness when beer was being made because they looked at it with that sense of of awe and wonder that when they're creating that thing, they're not looking at it like, oh, oh, here's a spatula and then there's a spoon. And they weren't looking at it as something they controlled, but rather this living entity filled with this kind of otherworldliness that was coming into their life of which they would partake and would change them. And you see that same kind of approach to the world in artisans or artists who have a real sense of the invisible nature of the things that they work with, like um, writers. William Stafford, the poet, once said, a writer moves his arms through an invisible medium as if he were swimming, and people on the shore look at it and wonder without being able to understand the medium through which the writer's swimming. And it's like that. There's this keen sense of the invisibles that underlie physical form, and that's present everywhere, but it's literally a shaping of those things toward a specific outcome so that human beings become more aware of the invisibles that affect their lives, that affect their heart and their spirit. So that's the way beers were made back then. And there actually are some microbreweries now that are going more in that direction. And, you know, like Dogfish um, has some wonderful stuff they've been doing lately. Um, and their, their beers taste different. They are better. And, and now we think of beer as being made with hops, but there were many other herbs and plants that were included in the beer-making process. Could you speak about some of those? Hops was not much used in beer-making. I think the first references I could find to it were in about the 13th century, and it really wasn't until the 16th century that it started becoming a fundamental part of brewing. But even then, up through World War II, there was a huge amount of beer making without hops. And hops began to be put into beer really by Protestants in the 16th century, primarily in England and in Germany because people were brewing a lot of beers that were highly psychotropic back then. And the thing about hops, of all of the plants on the planet, hops has the most uh, female estrogens in it of any plant on the planet. So it's extremely high in estradiol, which is the most potent female estrogenic hormone. So when men drink a lot of hopped beer, are come in contact with a lot of hops, it begins to affect their reproductive system quite strongly. There's a, a well-known condition called brewer's droop from brewers that have handled hops for many, many, many years, and that basically it changes the estrogen to androgen ratio in the man's body so much so that it affects reproductive function tremendously. So it does two things. It does that, and it's also extremely soporific. It puts the drinker to sleep. So essentially it dulls sexual drive in the male and puts the drinker to sleep. And very, very few plants that you could put in there will actually do that. It's also highly antibacterial, so you get this perfect combination for beer making. But for instance, 
Wormwood was used in beers a lot. It's highly, it's bittering. It's also highly antibacterial, but it won't affect reproductive function or anything else. And there were, I think, I found records of over 150 different plants that were regularly used in brewing prior to, let's say, they were still pretty common through the early 19th century. You ask any uh, person who drinks a lot and then, you know, finds a lady and, or a man and then takes them home, they often experience those same kind of symptoms that you're talking about with lowered sexual drive. Right, it's true. The neat thing is there's a number of brewers now that since my book came out, it sort of took off for a lot of people, which I think is wonderful. And there's been a lot of exploration of more traditional non-hopdales occurring, some really unusual stuff. And the whole concept of Gruet has come back quite strongly. Gruet was the number one form of beer or ale produced in the Western world before the advent of hopped ales, and it had at least a thousand-year history. And more and more people are making that as well, and it's, it's a great ale. And you have a, a lot in your book about various psychotropic beers, and do you think there's a place in our society for psychotropic beers now? Well, there's a place in our society for psychotropics. I mean whether it's in beer or any other kind, you know, you look at, at what's happening, the war on drugs in the United States that's been going on, started about in 1906 with the creation of the FDA and all of that. It's not working. There's a fundamental need for every organism to use psychotropics or a certain number of individuals within a species to use them. And you're looking at probably about a 20% need. So that thing, it's it's repressed so strongly in our culture, but what's being missed is the fundamental need within living organisms to do that for the health of the culture. So yeah, I think there's a, an absolute place for it, and what's more, a fundamental need that has to be addressed. So what were the religious connections to fermentation for the ancient people? Does alcohol take people to a different kind of mind space, like a sacred mind space, and I know it's used in Christianity to this day. Well, yeah, it's used in Christianity to a certain extent. It's like completely controlled in that sense. But yeah, of course, what I was mentioning earlier about the sacred dynamics of it, I mean, there's this magical thing that comes into being without the human. I mean, see, even in Belgium, now they still have open-air fermentation, which generally are called lambiques, and it's a mixture of various kinds of yeasts and lactobacilli that do the fermentation, and it tastes like a slightly sour Chardonnay. But that idea of that you mix some sugar and water, a sugar substance and water together, and then it magically changes into this substance that changes your consciousness, it was a phenomenal kind of experience. And I mean, we sort of take that for granted now, but no, they didn't before now. Ancient stories about the origin of beers so often have a connection to the, the sacred and also the experience of mortality that every human faces. So what do you think this is? Before now, even when my great-grandfather, who I knew quite well, who was a physician, was alive, he died in 1963, but he was born in 1888, so he was completely aware that people were meant to be biodegradable. I mean, he was a physician, a country physician, and he lived with that life and death dynamic all of the time. And he delivered babies in their homes and sat with them as they were dying in those same homes years later. That, con that recognition that death is inevitable and we're all 
meant to be biodegradable was something that was fundamentally understood prior to World War II in most cultures on Earth. And we've gotten into this thing now that death is an enemy that has to be defeated, and, and that was just different. So most cultures, the concept of mortality was integrated. And yeah, of course, there was huge amounts of um, grieving that went with it, that like there is with any kind of letting go process. But, you know, many of the stories in ancient cultures had to do with the gods taking pity on human beings and giving them alcohol to help them make it through or deal with their own mortality. So that makes perfect sense to me. You can see it everywhere. It's like basically the human predicament is a predicament and these things do make it easier to survive that predicament with our spirits intact. So kind of just in closing here, do you have any tips for our listeners that might be suffering from a cold or a flu? Uh, one of the things that I use for it, you know, for years I um, avoided kitchen herbalism uh, because I wanted stuff that was sexier, but truly the best thing to do for that, and there was a, a beer and ale made from it as well. Ginger ale was originally a fermented thing, and it was the most popular drink in 1776 in the United States. Everybody drank it, but if you get fresh ginger juice, and it has to be fresh, and just take about two ounces of that, mixed with eight ounces of hot water, a pinch of cayenne, some honey and lime. It's actually got some of the most potent antiviral substances of any plant on earth in it. It's active against influenza, SARS, West Nile, a whole lot of things. And it's the primary thing I use now whenever I feel a cold or flu coming on. I drink maybe three to four cups of that over a day for two days and then it's just gone. It never develops any further. And you can also take that same thing and ferment it and it'll last you all year, all year long. Your book has so many incredible recipes. Do you, do you have a, a favorite one that uh, maybe one of our listeners could make at home? My favorite one is I have my two favorites are yarrow ale and ginger beer like that. The yarrow ale, it's, I tend to make beer in about two and a half gallon sizes, batches, because I got tired of throwing stuff away when it, five gallons away when it didn't turn out well, but pretty much use three ounces of yarrow in flour. It needs to be fresh, unfortunately, which makes it harder to make uh, during the year, and you put it in two and a half gallons of water or two gallons of water or so, bring it to a boil, but it, just as soon as it hits a boil, you turn off the heat and you cover it, so that keeps all of the aromatics of the flowers in the water and you let it sit overnight and then the next day you strain it and add a pound of whatever kind of sugar substance you want to have in there whether you want to use malt extract or dried malt or whatever then you add yeast and ferment it and it's it's I think one of the finest beers I've ever had
that wraps up our interview with Stephen Buner on alcohol throughout history, alternative ways of brewing beer that didn't involve hops. What was that called? Brewer's Troop? Yes, for brewers that use hops excessively and because of the high amount of estrogen in hops which is by the way the highest amount of estrogen found in any sort of plant people that often interact with beers too much beers or brewing beers often develop a symptom known as brewer's droop and through my my research i found that brewer's droop is also the name of a band wow we also talked about the way that nature uses these modifiers to process information that's what i thought was really fascinating because he was talking about how trees actually get drunk and yeah, trees, uh, apple trees is getting drunk off their own apples. Isn't that kind of incestual or something? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so crazy to think that nature is just sitting around me, probably just thinking, like, where am I going to get my next fix? Where can I no, get they're high? They're probably just too high to even think about anything. They're just like, <laughs> man, I'm so wasted on these apples just fermented in my soil. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're just thinking, like, whoa, I can't even move right now. <laughs> <laughs> they have ground block. But I, I also thought it was really interesting how he was talking about the viewpoints of ecology and ecological thinking. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about thinking of humans as the pinnacle and thinking like, wow, you know, look at where we are in this whole system. And he was saying kind of like bees, bees are going around doing things and they don't even know the greater impact. And humans are doing that in the same way that we're serving some ecological function and we don't even know it. Here we are doing all of these things and we just don't even understand how we're fitting into the ecology. Yeah, we, we think of ants. We look at ants are these tiny little insects crawling around the ground and we're so enormously large. You know, they look up and they don't even see us. Their brains move so quickly that by the time that we pass over them and crash over into their anthills and destroy their ways of life, they're just thinking that it's the end of the world type event. Yeah, do so you think that their, imagine, their Mayan apocalypse was a boot coming down and just crushing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every day when somebody squashes that bug, it's just like another Mayan apocalypse. That on, on the same kind of scale for us as what we imagine on a you know collective movie movie Hollywood style crashing into the world kind of event happens every day for animals and bugs bugs in particular. It is very interesting to think about how very small humans are on the scale of the universe and the whole world and just the tiny tiny little part and small small little time that we've actually even been around on the planet and to think that we fulfill a specific task as a species is something that's very heartening and it kind of blends itself well into a lot of different faiths and religions and kind of makes people feel all right there's a lot of people in certain environmental movements that are very anti-humanist and are very much coming from the perspective that, you know, oh, humans are just destroying the planet and we're going to destroy all life. And what's really the role of humanity in doing all this? You know, what wouldn't the world be better off if we just didn't exist? And I think what Stephen Buhner is talking about is the importance of humanity in the overall process of ecological functioning. And to think that if we weren't serving a purpose, then we wouldn't be here because there would be a way of selecting us out. And that's not to say that we're approaching a point in the future like Joseph Tainter was telling us about where there may be a lot fewer of us on the planet, but that's not to say that the planet would be better off without us either because even though our economic system is doing a lot of horrible things to this planet at the moment, there's still a very important role that humans are playing in the cycles of all the plants and trees and animals around us that we're not even aware of and that we can't even quantify or understand in a lot of ways because it's so huge 
And like he was saying, in a lot of ways, the reproductive organisms of the planet. We're taking and moving all of these things around and mixing them up and causing new gene combinations and causing new things to happen. That's true. Uh, so our nuclear radiation is helping to move the planet forward be- by making three-eyed mice and four-legged frogs. It's a very, <laughs> yeah. it's a very great place to be. We're special. I'm glad that we're here to do these, those kind of things. Yeah. On the other hand, we're serving this important reproductive function for the planet, but think of all of the species that we wiped out too. And that legacy is on our species' shoulder very heavily and weighs very heavily at this time where more and more species are being destroyed through changing climates and desertification and, and all of these problems. And yeah. so I did like what he said about how plants and humans share very much the same biology and the same kind of chemicals and, and drugs that affect humans also have an effect on plants. He mentioned the example of the tree placed underneath the tent, which was filled with chloroform and then transplanted to another location and how that a tree normally would have shock when planted, transplanted to another location. And because using the chloroform, a scientist was actually able to avoid the shock from the tree. And I thought that was fascinating that trees could react to those kind of drugs in the same way that humans could. We were talking about alcohol before, but chloroform as well. I wonder if you sprinkled some, some high-quality cocaine around a tree, if it would jump up and run around. <laughs> We come at our cultural ideas and so rarely question them. And one of those cultural ideas is that of, you know, going out to the bar and drinking and having this particular experience around alcohol. And what's really great about Stephen Buhner's book on brewing and alcohol through history is that he talks about the ways that alcohol was used so differently. And it was like your village had its own brew. And you were fermenting things all the time and so many of the things that you made and ate were fermented and now everything that we have that's fermented comes from so far away and is pasteurized and is a completely different experience than what Sandra Katz was telling us in episode 23 that as we're eating these fermented foods from around us we're actually becoming part of our own local environment because they were made there you know it's kind of a happy, touchy-feely kind of like, yeah, we're becoming part of our environment. But even on a deeper level, we're becoming part of our environment because we're ingesting the very bacteria that inhabit our space. Because if you go and you eat sourdough that comes from Paris, it's going to taste very different from sourdough that's made in San Francisco. And that's because the air there is different. And that's because the bacteria there are different. What I found out recently is that the bacteria and life that's going on inside you has a huge impact on the way you feel and the way you look at life. And I had a root canal back in December and I had to take antibiotics for the first time in a really long time. It killed everything that was going on in my gut. And I didn't realize I had to take probiotics afterwards and I had such terrible digestion like I was burping all the time and I felt almost borderline depressed. I was like, oh, you know, I have no energy. I just feel awful. Then I started taking probiotics and within like a few days, everything changed. My mood was back up to normal. I felt normal again and I started feeling like the the, uh, the normal kind of energy that I have for life and the bacteria that were inside me were regulating my mood and my experience far more than I'd ever realized. And that really plays into ingesting your environment and the bacteria that live there and through fermented foods and through the fermented beverages that come in through your environment. It completely allows you to plug into the place that you're living in in a completely different way. 
And that's something that I didn't realize until I understood how much that the bacteria inside me were playing in terms of my experience and my mood. So if you want to hear more of Justin and I's stories about how our experiments with our own bodies through the intake of antibiotics and the subsequent probiotic combat that must be done to replace the bacteria, you can find us on the web at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. The Stitcher app is available for those of you who do not have iTunes or would like to listen to Justin and I without downloading the whole podcast. Stitcher app is available for you. If you live in British Columbia, you can listen to us on the radio and we'd love to hear from you as well. So call in and leave us a voicemail message, write us an email or send us a tweet tweet makes our day when we get to hear from our listeners yeah and so people who've gone to our website and have uh, sent us some emails are chris in vermont he sent us an email to say that he really enjoyed our interview with morris berman and that he's going to be using some bits of it on a program on WMPG in Portland, Maine, and on WGDR in Plainfield. And that is completely fine. So as long as you say you got it from the Extra Environmentalist podcast, you can use these clips in any audio project that you want. Also wanted to say thanks to Andrew, who said that he's been tuning in a lot recently, and he's in a similar position to you, Seth, in that he has a huge gap between him and his parents on the issues of earth, energy, environment. And he said that we were bringing him a lot of comfort and self-esteem to know that he's on a path that others are, are sharing. Go ahead. Glad you're fighting that fight, man. Keep it up. Your parents deserve your hard work and attention. You know what? That's that's what we're here to do is to help take care of our parents, but also to make life hard on them a little bit. That's <laughs> right. All the you know, crazy that's ideas. What children are, <laughs> that's yeah. what children are here for is to make life really hard on your parents and to teach them new things and to challenge them and you know eventually if you keep pounding and keep pounding they'll come around that's the secret and when you're not least expecting it you'll like turn around and be like oh hey mom how's it going what what you doing there and then you're, you're surprised and then it's just like never has happened all those arguments and all those conversations kind of just take a, a background seat to the newest and greatest Stuff. Well, you know, that love kind of shines through and builds that bridge. And you can have some really hard, really difficult discussions, but you know what? There's still that love there that's involved. And so it's a really special relationship. Thanks to Todd who wrote in and he said that uh, he really enjoyed our interview with Joseph Tainer. And he was saying that, you know, he's tried activism. He's tried supporting the whole monkey wrench community garden, speaking truth to power approach to dealing with these issues. He was saying that Tainter suggests that we start getting the word out about what's really happening in our world, about you know peak everything, that we're facing these resource limits, and that everything about our lives are going to change. And he's like, if you do that, you know, it's going to affect your relationships, your employment. And being right about these things means less friends. And, you know, the baby boomers who you talk to are always like, oh, you're just depressing me. Why are you going to talk about those depressing things? And he thought, you know, it's interesting, but it's like, how do you talk to people about reality when they are just so focused on other things? That That's right, Todd. And a lot of times it feels like we're just banging our head, heads against the wall a lot of times and feels like just saying these things over and over and over again becomes kind of like a mantra and it feels like you why even bring these topics up if people are just going to shoot you down but there is a community out there that does understand these ideas and does understand the things that you have you're, you're thinking about and things that you're listening to and the things that we talk about on this show there are those people who do understand you so don't lose hope because one day these ideas will be the mainstream and you'll have a head start and you know we're building a kinship through all the people who interact with 
the podcast through our Facebook page. And there's people meeting up in Denmark, starting to talk about some of the things that we do on the extra environmentalist. And so, you know what, maybe there's no one in your immediate community that you can talk to about things like this, but there are people who are out there in the world, quite a few people who are willing to take on these issues. Thanks again for listening. We have a new blog that you should check out over at extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog. It's great. It's awesome. It's new. Come out, check it out, comment. It's new. It's neat. It's fun. And that's about it. So once again, thanks for joining us in the Extra Environmentalist. And to everyone out there drinking, make sure to save a little bit for the trees. talk about virtual reality as some future technology that's going to change everything. We've been living in a virtual reality for the past 6,000 years. I mean, look at cities like New York and London and Los Angeles. I mean, every nature has disappeared. Everything you see is a human idea downloaded into material existence. It's entirely virtual. It doesn't disappear at the punch of a dial, but it is as virtual as the virtual realities that will eventually be made out of, uh, out of light behind goggles. Culture and language tend to become trapped, and yet they can be the platforms for enormous freedom if you understand what it's all about. So then when you look for guidance, direction, mentorship, we always look toward institutions. Well, I'll go to the university, or I'll go to the army, or I'll do something. Somebody will tell me, will give me a larger purpose. But it's really yourself that is uh, the final arbiter. And if you keep yourself as the final arbiter, you will be less susceptible to infection by cultural illusion. Now, the problem with this is that it makes you feel bad to not be infected by cultural illusion because it's called alienation, you know. But this is, I, I can't solve all problems. The reason we feel alienated is because the society is infantile, trivial, and stupid. So uh, the cost of sanity in this society is a certain level of alienation. I grapple with this because I'm a parent. And I think anybody who has children, you come to this realization, what'll it be? Alienated, cynical intellectual, or slack-jawed, half-wit consumer of the horseshit being handed down from on high? There is not much choice in there, you see. And, and we all want our children to be well-adjusted. It's Unfortunately, there's nothing to be well-adjusted to. 
so uh, that's a real problem. And I really believe that extra-environmentalism, which is a nicer, though longer, word for alienation, is defensible and shouldn't be thought of as pathological. What I noticed in going to the Amazon and Indonesia and these places is that the person you want to get to is the shaman. And, but the shaman is different from everybody else. Like when you go into an Amazonian tribe that's way upriver or something, the people behave the way you would expect naive, untraveled people to behave. They want to touch your Gore-Tex and, you know, look at your camera and, and look through the binoculars and fiddle with the can opener and all that. No shaman would ever stoop to such uh, behavior. A shaman is not knows that cultures are provisional and is interested in you as a person. The other people don't even see you as a person because you're huge, white, strange, smelling, and incomprehensible. The shaman sees you as a person, and it's because he is alienated. The reason shamans can do their magic is because they are outside the belief system. So I think alienation, extra-environmentalism, shamanism, whatever you want to call it, is simply individualism in the context of cultures that don't value individualism. And cultures don't. You know, it's said nature acts to preserve the species. Cultures act to preserve the illusions of the population. They're not interested in you if you're an Einstein or a Jackson Pollock or unless they can fit you in to the pre-established systems of commerce and canons of aesthetic order and so forth and so on. And then that's called being civilized. students at another school I taught at that would come up to me like, what do I have to do in this class to get an A? I'm like, awesome. This is great. Because I can tell you whatever and you'll do it, you know? So basically I would give them all these assignments that would encourage them not to care about that, you know? Like if you want to get an A in this assignment, you have to walk, you know, like down the street seven blocks, then turn left, then flip a coin. And if it's heads, go left, and if it's tails, go right. And they're like, I'm just writing everything down, you know? <laughs> and basically, like, I want them to go have some kind of experience in life. Even though society's already collapsed, he's still covering government cover-ups, mainstream media, and practical tips in the Mad Max society you live in. He's Alex Jones on the Extra Environmentalist Radio Network. Now that you're uh, hidden away in your uh, stockpile in your bunker, we have a new segment on Alex Jones' show 
you're gonna need to learn how to use all those stockpiled goods to make sure that you develop some delicious and nutritional meals for your family. So we're gonna take it to our new cooking segment. Cooking with Alex Jones, he knows how to cook those rice and beans. So we're here in the InfoWars kitchen today. Now that I got my Kiss the FEMA Camp apron on, we're gonna talk with our special guest today, Johnson Flyby, the author of Campside Cooking with FEMA, about some of the excellent nutritional meals that you can make for you and your family. Hopefully, you didn't just stockpile beans and rice, you also stockpiled a wide variety of grains such as quinoa. We're gonna talk with Johnson today about some of the things that you can make in your apocalypse bunker in your stockpile. So Johnson, uh, what's one of the first most basic recipes that you'd recommend for somebody? Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate you having me on this show. For all you listeners out there who have that those stockpiles of all those dried foods that you've been hearing so much about on your show, you're some of the few people on this planet right now who have a reliable source of food. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So uh, I wanted to go through a few items from my cookbook that I have, have just put out. Let's start out with some basic recipes that everyone will probably have in their stockpile. You've heard of the rice and beans, and that, that is one of our staples. And you can find that in my book, Campside Cooking with FEMA. But you can also use the, the grits. Now, the grits are a southern treat where I am from in the deep deep south, mixing those with some tasty vegetables that you have dehydrated, you can make uh, one of our tasty recipes called Bohemian Grits. That sounds excellent, Johnson. How, how can our listeners actually go about making these Bohemian Grits? Well, the Bohemian Grits have a, a secret item in them, which I will tell you in about in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about how to prepare these grits. Is this ingredient part of an elite conspiracy? What I can tell you is after you've made your grits, you you want to go down to your ammunition supply. And when you go down there, you want to find yourself a small caliber round, preferably 35 millimeters, and uh, take some of that gunpowder that you find and just sprinkle it on top of your grits. Now, not many people know, but gunpowder has a very unique taste that is remarkably like salt and paprika mixed together. So so it's like literally a, a flavor explosion in your mouth. That, that's correct, Alex. You take a a little bit of that gunpowder, drip it over your grits, and you got yourself some bohemian grits. Uh, that sounds amazing, Johnson. So as you'll see here in the InfoWars kitchen, I have quite a few bags of rice and quite a few cans of beans. Now, now what can I do with all those? Well, Alex, everybody's got the rice and the beans. Before you start opening those cans of beans, you got to make sure that you have yourself a proper can opener. Good can opener has rubber grips on both sides. It can also be used as a weapon for uh, those pesky people trying to come steal your beans. If you open up your beans with your can opener, you dump them into the pot. Now make sure that you have one of those aluminum pots that give you that aluminum taste in there because that's it's very, very important. What of our listeners uh, did not stockpile some of the basic kitchen necessities? How can they go about getting some kitchen goods? I'm glad you asked about that, Alex, because it brings me to my next important ingredient, which is pepper. Now, pepper is a common condiment used in many recipes, but a little known fact that pepper can also be used as a spray for defense. You can use that pepper spray and go down to your local Walmart, spray anyone that gets in your way, 
spray them with pepper and get on your way. Excellent. Thanks for that advice, Johnson. So once you've got all the kitchen necessities that, that you've either stockpiled or uh, captured from your uh, local Walmart after walking and pepper spraying the hordes of uh, people, how can people actually start uh, cooking their beans and rice? Do you have your cans of rice and beans handy? I sure do, Johnson. It, there's this whole okay. bunker is full of them. All right. Well, let's uh, go grab yourself a can of beans. All right. And uh, go get yourself some rice. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Well, first thing you're going to do, get your rice. Yeah, I got it right here. Okay. Now pop some of that rice into a pan of boiling water. Good thing I stockpiled this propane burner. That's right. Now you're going to turn on that propane burner, spark yourself up a little fire, and get to cooking. Now open your can of beans. Dump those beans into that pot. So I've got the beans and the rice here in this pot. Anything else I can do to make a nutritional and delicious meal for my uh, captured and enslaved family in the FEMA camp? You're going to look for that packet that's labeled dehydrated fruit. Now do you see those ones, Alex? As you can see, I've got walls of dehydrated fruit here, so I'll just grab one of these. And you're going to pour those dehydrated fruit right into that pot. So it's like I've got almost a tropical dish here with these rice and beans. I've just taken your standard rice and beans and turned it into a tropical treat. Yes, it's a little known fact that fruit actually, before collapse, was not dehydrated. And it, it grew on trees. Can you believe that, Alex? That, that's just like how the oil would just come out of the ground because it was produced by the earth, the inner earth. Exactly, Alex. You, you've got the, you got the idea perfectly. The InfoWars bunker, we're really well stocked here. And uh, we've got quite a few different dining sets that we can use to eat off of. But what advice do you have for our listeners that maybe didn't stockpile plates? Your listeners will probably have stockpiled gold bars. You can use gold bars instead of plates. I know it sounds a little bit crazy, a little bit out there, but gold bars work just as well. They're not as well designed to capture the juices rolling off of your food, but they're a nice substitute when you don't have a plate available. Excellent advice, Johnson. I, I really appreciate your time with us today, and I'm really looking forward to uh, your next book. And, and one of the advantages of, uh, of cooking rice and beans is is that the flatulence produced afterwards is actually a completely clean source of natural gas. That's correct, Alex. But you can also use it to crank a generator that'll power your TV set or your radio so you can listen to you, Alex. Make those beans and power your radios so you can hear more Alex Jones. And you can join us next week for our Cooking with Alex segment where we're going to be talking to Bobby Flay about his new book, Flaying the Competition and it's about his, his journey into the darker sides of the culinary arts. <laughs>